Hello, and welcome to Dark Side, a brand new true crime podcast that focuses on crimes that change laws, law enforcement, and crimes whereby something positive rose from the ashes of a terrible tragedy. And maybe, just maybe, some crimes that don't fall into the aforementioned categories, but they are stories that need to be told, that need to be heard. I hope you'll stick with me for the ride. As always, it'll be a bumpy one. I must forewarn you that today's story contains some pretty graphic violence. It is definitely not for little ears. Listener discretion could not be more advised. So with that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story takes us to New Albany, Ohio, a suburb of the state capital, Columbus. In 2016, Columbus was named as one of the USA's top six best big cities in which to live. Among other attributes, it was cited as having affordable housing, quality schools, and a low crime rate. But, just a year prior, In August of 2015, the city of Columbus would recoil with horror from a savage attack on one of their own. On August 2nd, 2015, 32-year-old Judy Malinowski had made a decision. A big decision. She was just a few weeks shy of her 33rd birthday, and she was determined to change her life around once and for all. It was another hot day in the summer city heat, and as temperatures soared towards 31 degrees Celsius, 88 degrees Fahrenheit, Judy had just been dropped off at the steps of the Parkside Drug Rehabilitation Center by her boyfriend. She lit one last cigarette before she was to enter the facility, determined that today, this day, she was going to make the changes her life so desperately needed not just for her, but also for her two beautiful daughters. It was at this moment that something caught her attention. And this started the chain of events that would devastate a family, shock a city, a state, a nation, and ultimately change the law. This is Darkseid, and I am your host. Zeus. So why was Judy stood on the steps of the rehabilitation centre? How had her life spiralled so out of control that she was having to undertake drug rehabilitation? And what was it that had caught her attention? Hmm think we're going to have to go back to the beginning for this one. Judy Bowes was born on August 26, 1983, in New Albany, Ohio. She was a fun-loving, ambitious child with an infectious spirit and personality. She was also stunningly beautiful and smart. She graduated from New Albany High School, class of 2001, where she was crowned Miss New Albany and homecoming queen. 
she was definitely a favourite amongst her classmates. People gravitated towards Judy, and even though she was extremely popular, she was also kind. And one of Judy's many gifts was her ability to love all people unconditionally, without judgement. After high school, Judy went on to attend The Ohio State University. Oh, she could have had her pick of universities, but Judy wanted to stay near her family. She was very close to them, especially her mother, Bonnie. Whilst at university, Judy met Ron Malinowski. The father of one daughter was smitten with a vivacious, stunning, outgoing and caring Judy. The two hit it off and were soon in a whirlwind romance that led to the couple getting married. And in 2004, at the age of 21, Judy and Ron welcomed their first child into the world. Life was going so well for Judy. A wonderful husband, a loving close-knit family, a great job in customer service, and the cherry on the cake, a gorgeous baby daughter, Kaylin. And then, tragedy struck. Shortly after the birth of her daughter, Judy was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. This was a massive blow to her and her family. Her daughter was only a baby, and Judy had dreamed of having a big family. But Judy made the decision to fight this awful disease with everything that she had. That same indomitable spirit that she had displayed all her life. She was not going to leave her child motherless. And so, Judy fought. Her battle was rewarded when in January of 2005, she was told that the cancer was in remission. She had beaten the disease. Her battle was over. But little did Judy know that while she did win this battle, it would only be the start of a war that she would fight for the rest of her life. Judy and Ron looked to the future and even dared to dream of having another child. And in early 2006, they welcomed a second daughter to their family, Madison. Judy's future looked bright and her cup ran over with the fatuity of her life. Judy and Ron were a popular couple and had a close-knit group of friends whom they spent most of their time with. It was a real tight-knit circle and included in this circle was Melissa, Ron's previous partner and mother of his first child. Judy and Ron's girls loved their stepsister and likewise Judy became close friends with Melissa. They were often at each other's houses and their children loved to play together. But just months after the birth of Madison in April of 2006, history repeated itself. Judy was told that her ovarian cancer had returned and so she would face another battle for her life. But as she had done just two years before, Judy faced this battle with resolve and determination. She would face the odds and win this battle. And she did win the battle. But complications after treatment left Judy in a severe amount of pain. Pain that she was to battle for years to come. Judy was no longer able to work because of the pain and had to go on to benefits and she struggled with daily tasks. In order to get through each and every day, 
Judy was on a cocktail of painkillers. But the years of struggle had taken a toll on Judy's mental health and, sadly, her marriage to Ron. The two remained together, but the strain was visible and palpable. So Judy found herself turning to her friendship circle more and more for support. Especially Melissa. It was while she had been visiting Melissa at her house in 2007 that Judy met Michael Slager. Michael had been injured in a car accident, and, as he was between housing, Melissa had allowed him to stay at her house whilst he convalesced. Michael quickly ingratiated himself into their friendship circle, and became a firm friend to Judy. However, one night, whilst the friends were enjoying an evening together, Michael pulled Judy to one side. He had something to tell her. And this information was to be the first step on the path towards the horrific event that changed Judy and her family's life forever, shocked a nation, and ultimately changed a law. Michael told Judy that Ron was having an affair. But Judy barely had time to process this shocking news before Michael started to confess that he liked her, had always liked her. In fact, he was in love with her. But Michael was dating one of Judy's friends. And, as flattered as she was by Michael's confession and attention, Judy kept him firmly in the friendship zone. Reeling from the shock of Michael's revelations, Judy withdrew from the friendship group for a while to concentrate on her marriage. However, sadly, the marriage was irreparable, and Ron and Judy separated. So now, Judy was a single mother on benefits. Her mental health was already at a low ebb when in 2010, at just the age of 27, the doctors advised that she needed a full hysterectomy to ensure the cancer did not come back again, and to resolve the constant pain that she was in. This devastated Judy and her dreams of having a big family. But she also knew that she needed to do everything that she could to prolong her life for the sake of her two daughters. And so she agreed to the operation. But uh, between the cancer treatment the years of pain and the hysterectomy, Judy was still left in daily pain, which she managed and controlled with prescribed painkillers. As Judy recovered from the surgery and her health began to improve, her doctor, along with the health insurance, decided that the painkillers were no longer needed, and they were stopped. And this is when Judy realised she had become addicted. Terrified and going through withdrawals, Judy confided in her mother, Bonnie, about her addiction. Bonnie immediately booked her into a rehabilitation centre. And thankfully, after weeks of battling once again for her life, the treatment worked and Judy was no longer addicted. Her mother could not have been more proud of the amazing courage that Judy had displayed 
during the many battles she had endured and won in her short life, and felt confident that her daughter's future would be nothing but bright going forward. But little did Bonnie know that Judy had been leading a double life. She had been addicted to painkillers for years, and when she could no longer get them, she had, sadly, turned to hard drugs. She had kept her addiction a secret from her mother and extended family, but having no access to painkillers anymore, and now being solely reliant on heroin and crack cocaine, her addiction escalated, and her life, by comparison, headed on an ever-quickening downward spiral. Judy did attend several drug rehabilitation centres, desperate and determined to kick the addiction. She'd beaten cancer twice. She would kick heroin. But each time, the lure of the drugs pulled her back in. It was a battle that she would fight for years. During these years, after her divorce, Judy turned back to her close-knit friends, eager to have a support system in her life once more. Especially... Melissa. However, on meeting up with everyone again, she noticed a familiar face was missing. Michael. On inquiring of his whereabouts, she was informed that Michael was in prison. And with that, Judy slowly worked on rebuilding her life, getting clean, focusing on her children, and all thoughts of Michael Slager slowly ebbed from her mind. By 2014, life for Judy was on the up. She had been free from cancer and drugs for years and was battling hard to stay sober and drug-free. She still wasn't able to work and so was still on disability, but Judy knew her life was finally moving in the right direction. And then one day, she received a message on Facebook it was from Michael Slager. As she read his message, she remembered him with fondness. He said he was out of prison now, but he was having a hard time. His girlfriend had recently died of a heroin overdose, and he missed Judy's friendship. Judy and Michael were soon messaging each other every day. Several times a day. Their friendship grew stronger, and eventually, Michael asked Judy to go on a date with him. She considered it. They had been good friends some years ago, but she had not seen him as a potential partner at that time because of her marriage to Ron. Back then, she'd friend-zoned him. But now, looking at his profile picture and reading his sweet words, she realised she was attracted to him. So, she agreed to go on the date. The date went well. Very well, in fact. They laughed, they joked, they reminisced, and Judy realised that Michael was definitely no longer in the friend zone. In fact, he was so far outside the friend zone that she invited him to stay the night. Mm -hmm. Their enjoyment continued through the night, 
But the next morning, Michael made excuses not to leave. So she let him stay for another night. And then another night, and another night, and, well, Michael never left. From that very first date, Michael just moved into her home. It was quite some months later that Judy told her mum, Bonnie, about her new relationship with Michael in early 2015. Bonnie was happy for her daughter. Finally, after years of being alone and enduring hardships and battles, her daughter's life seemed to be picking up. But, from the beginning, Bonnie sensed something was off with Michael. Well, for a start, they'd been together for some time, but she had never met him. When Judy came to visit her, she would come alone, and she would often be sporting bruises. Bonnie was worried for her daughter, but Judy always had an excuse for each and every bruise and allayed her mother's worries. But Bonnie was right to be worried. Judy's relationship with Michael was fractious from the start. Very quickly, Michael became controlling, coercive and obsessive over Judy. He wasn't interested in her family or daughters. He just wanted Judy all to himself all of the time. He even went as far as putting a tracking device on her phone. The couple fought often and violently. Well, it was Michael dishing out the violence, not Judy. And after trying so hard over so many years to get clean and stay clean, Michael began giving her painkillers again. Oh, he knew of her history with addiction. She had told him all about her years of struggle. But still, he proceeded to ply her with painkillers. And the inevitable happened. She became hooked again, and it wasn't long before she was back on the heroin. Judy's life was once again spiralling out of control. The money that Judy received from benefits went little way to paying for her heroin addiction. So, Judy often had to lean on her mother for financial support. But Bonnie didn't know that her hard-earned cash was being spent on drugs. But she did see her daughter's life spiralling downward. Her appearance was dishevelled, her confidence and bright spirit dulled, and she suspected that Michael Slager was behind her daughter's change. She pleaded for Judy to leave him, but her pleas fell on deaf ears, and it seemed that the more Bonnie begged for her daughter to see the light, the more Michael dragged her into the abyss. In a last-ditch attempt to get through to her daughter, Bonnie told Judy that she would no longer financially support her if she stayed with Michael. So, Judy begrudgingly agreed to leave him. But she didn't leave him. She hid Michael's presence in her life and house from her mother and continued to receive her mother's financial support. But it wasn't long before Bonnie did find out that Michael was still very much present and still very much indentured in Judy's life. Realising that her daughter had lied to her and feeling at an absolute loss of how to help her get out of this quagmire, Bonnie made 
a final desperate decision. She cut her daughter off altogether. It broke her heart to take this drastic action, because Bonnie wanted nothing more than to help her daughter. But she knew now that she had to adopt a tough love stance if her daughter was ever going to seek help and a way out. But Judy didn't seek a way out. Instead, she turned to begging on the streets to fund her addiction. In March 2015, Bonnie received a call from Michael. They had been arguing and Judy was refusing to let him into the house. Michael feared Judy was going to commit suicide. So, frantic with worry, Bonnie called the paramedics. Nothing came of the situation legally, but Bonnie was now back in Judy's life. However, she still refused to financially support Judy while she was with Michael. But she was the named person on Judy's apartment lease. So, in another last-ditch attempt to jolt her daughter to seek help, Bonnie refused to renew the lease on Judy's apartment. Judy was forced to move her belongings into storage and move into a cheap hotel. Michael, of course, moved with her. Judy did manage to eventually find a cheap apartment, and of course, Michael moved right in with her. In May 2015, during a particularly bad argument with Michael, which turned violent, Judy locked herself into a bedroom and called the police, begging for help, saying that Michael was going to kill her. Realising what Judy had done, Michael then also called the emergency services and reported that Judy was high on drugs and was being violent towards him. Huh. As if. Again, nothing came of it legally, but the frequency of the fighting and the escalating violence finally convinced Judy that she needed to get Michael Slager out of her life once and for all. But every time Judy plucked up the courage to try and end things, Michael would turn violent until she reneged. If she left her house and hid elsewhere, he would track her down. In July 2015, Bonnie received a call from Judy saying that she was trying to break up with Michael, but he was refusing to leave the apartment. Bonnie rushed to her daughter's flat and demanded that he left. But Michael refused. Instead, he sauntered around as if he owned the place and was intimidating and arrogant to both Judy and Bonnie. And amazingly, this was the first time Bonnie had actually met Michael in person. And she despised him. In the end, Bonnie called the police and Michael was physically removed. After he left, Judy confided to Bonnie that Michael had got her hooked on drugs again, and she was desperate to get away from him and to get sober again. And Bonnie vowed to do everything that she could to help her daughter. A few days later, Judy visited Tolbert House, a drug rehabilitation centre, and filled in the paperwork. By now, Michael had wormed his way back into Judy's life, and Judy realised 
she needed to battle her addiction before she could have the strength to finally put Michael out of her life. So, Michael was alongside her at Talbot House. As they waited in the lobby for the nurses to admit her, Michael tried to convince her to leave, citing that they'd go to Cincinnati, start afresh and wean themselves off drugs using lower doses. But Judy was committed to rehab and refused to go. So, in a last-ditch attempt, Michael reminded her that at Talbot House they wouldn't allow her to smoke. And Judy realised she faced a huge uphill battle just trying to get off the drugs without having nicotine withdrawals as well. And sadly, this convinced Judy, and she left with Michael. But Judy wasn't to be deterred. She remembered spending some time at Parkside Rehab Centre previously. The programme had really helped her, and it was a longer programme than most rehab centres. Plus, they allowed her to smoke. And so, Judy's mind was made up. She wouldn't go to Cincinnati with Michael, but instead she'd go to Parkside. This decision enraged Michael, and once again he rained his fists down on her. Judy was terrified and desperate, and so she jumped into a car and sped away. She hid out in a hotel for six days. She contacted nobody and spent six days inside the hotel room. But on the sixth day, she reached out to a family member. And this family member informed Michael of her whereabouts. And sure enough, he dragged her kicking and screaming from the hotel and back into his life. On the 1st of August, Parkside Rehab Centre contacted Judy and informed her that they had a space for her. She arranged to attend the next day. To her great surprise, Michael was supportive of this. But she was worried that he would have an ulterior motive, just as he had on the day she tried to admit herself to Talbot House. On the 2nd of August 2015, Michael drove her to Parkside, just as he had taken her to Talbot House. When they arrived, Judy, fearful of Michael coercing her out of admitting herself, just as he had done at Talbot House, asked him to drop her off at the steps of the centre and allow her to go in alone. Michael wasn't happy. He wanted to come in with her, but she insisted, and so Michael left her at the foot of the centre's steps. As she walked up the steps, she noticed a patient having a cigarette. She reached for her cigarettes, but realised oh, she'd run out. So she asked the patient if she could have one of theirs, and they obliged. While she was determined to go through with the rehab, she also didn't want to enter without any cigarettes. She knew she wouldn't get through the programme if she couldn't have nicotine. And... She also really wanted to speak to her mother and daughter prior to being admitted. She knew it would be some time before she would see them again or speak to them, and she just wanted to hear their voices one last time. So, as she stood there smoking, 
she decided that she would do these errands first, before entering the rehab. There was a petrol station close by. She'd walk there, buy the cigarettes, and call her family. And then she would enter rehab. As her mind was meandering with these thoughts, she vaguely noticed Michael driving away from the facility. But then, something snapped her abruptly out of her thoughts and to attention. Instead of turning onto the street and away from the rehab centre, Michael had instead turned his vehicle around and was heading for her. He stopped in front of her, and she wasn't even sure at this point why he'd turned around. But, knowing that she needed some cigarettes, she asked him to take her to the local petrol station, called Speedway, to get some. And he obliged. But... From the moment that she got into his truck, she knew she had made a big mistake. The arguing started immediately. He didn't want her to go into rehab, but she was determined to go. They were still arguing as they pulled into the speedway. When Michael got out of the truck and went into the shop, Judy made the decision to run. It was her only chance to get away from him to get the help she so desperately needed, and to get her life back. So she snuck out of the truck and ran around to the back of the speedway to hide. But... Michael had seen her. As she cowered at the back of the shop, wondering what her next move was, Michael sped around the corner and slammed his truck to a screeching stop just feet from her. He got out of the truck and began hurling abuse at her and demanding she got back in the truck. But Judy refused. The argument escalated and Judy, at her absolute wit's end, screamed at him to leave her alone and threw a styrofoam cup of soda at him. Incensed, Michael ran to the back of his truck and grabbed an item. When Judy saw what he had in his hands, she screamed and she begged him to stop. But he looked at her, his eyes dead and full of evil, and he took the top off the can and began to pour petrol all over Judy. He started on her head and hair and worked his way down. Petrol got into Judy's mouth and her throat and her eyes and oh, it burned. She turned to run away, but tripped and fell to the floor. Michael continued to pour petrol over her entire body until she was soaked. Judy was once again in a fight for her life. She begged him to stop, but he didn't respond to any of her cries for help. He just kept repeating, How do you like that? She looked at his face, and all she could see was evil. But as she lay there, pleading for him to stop and begging for her life, he reached into his pocket and pulled out a lighter and began walking towards her. Judy screamed at the top of her lungs, and her screams attracted a passerby who headed to the back of the store to see what was going on. What he witnessed has scarred him for life. 
Judy was laying on the ground, her entire body engulfed with flames. Judy's blood-curdling screams could be heard for blocks. Her body writhed and burned in agony, her skin melting away. She looked at Michael and, with the last of her strength and breath, begged him to help her. But he just stood there, looking at her with dead black eyes, pure evil. The pain was overwhelming, and as fire raged over her body, Judy lost her sight as the flames raged over her face and melted her eyeballs. She was still trying to beg for help, but flames now engulfed her mouth and tongue. She could hear voices of people running to her rescue, but as the fire grew in intensity, covering her entire body, Judy's strength was ebbing. She could hear people shouting and screaming for help. But as the fire engulfed her ears, the voices slowly faded. She knew she was dying, and overcome with pain, Judy slipped into the blackness that was engulfing her. The witness that had rounded the corner to see Judy ablaze had called the emergency services and had run for an extinguisher. As he tried to get the flames under control, Michael calmly got back into his truck and drove away. <laughs> Unbelievable. Paramedics arrived and Judy was rushed to Ohio State University Hospital. Bonnie had been going about her day as normal, but Judy had been on her mind. She knew she was entering the Parkside Rehab Centre today, and she hoped, beyond hope, that this time her daughter would be able to kick the evil in her life, the drugs, and Michael. Her thoughts were interrupted by a phone call from an unknown number. It was the hospital. They informed her that Judy had been in an accident and could she come as soon as possible. And so Bonnie raced to the hospital, her mind whirring. Judy was supposed to be in rehab. How on earth had she gotten into an accident? And was it an accident? Bonnie had a gut feeling that Michael would somehow be involved. But nothing could have prepared Bonnie for what met her at the hospital. Judy was alive. Just. But 80% of her body was covered in fourth and fifth degree burns. She'd lost two fingers, both ears, all her hair, eyebrows and eyelashes, and suffered mass internal burns. She had been placed into an induced coma but Bonnie was told to prepare for the worst. Judy was not expected to live more than a few hours. In the space of one hour, Bonnie's hope for her daughter's future had been replaced with devastation and wrenching heartache at her daughter's horrific injuries and prognosis of imminent death. As police quickly caught up with Michael Slager, and arrested him on the charge of aggravated arson, felonious assault, and possession of criminal tools. Bonnie 
clung to her daughter's bedside. And as the minutes passed and turned into hours, and the hours turned into days, it was obvious that Judy's indomitable will, that same will that had gotten her through so many other battles in her life before, was in full force. Judy continued to cling to life, and the more that she hung on, the more surgeries and procedures the doctors performed in order to rebuild her face and her body. In total, Judy would undergo 60 surgeries, including skin grafts. Seven months after the attack, Judy was brought out of the induced coma. She was blind and could barely speak above a whisper as her vocal cords had been so badly damaged. Her hair, eyebrows and eyelashes never grew back. She still suffered terrible open wounds on her back. But because her body was in so much raw pain, she could not be laid on her front so that the open wounds could heal. And she would never walk again. Slowly, over time, her eyesight started to come back. And so, two months after she came around from the coma, Judy asked for a mirror. Bonnie was hesitant. Her beautiful daughter, the former Miss New Albany with thick golden blonde hair and perfect smile, was now reduced to a human skeleton with melted skin. But as always, Judy was adamant. When Judy looked at herself in the mirror, she did not cry, she did not wail, or moan, or show any self-pity. She studied herself in the mirror for some time, and then turned to her mother and said that she vowed she would do all that she could to help other women in domestic violence situations. <laughs> Amazing woman. But, despite all the best efforts by the doctors and Judy's indomitable will, her injuries were too severe. Judy was informed that she would never recover. She would never leave hospital. It was only a matter of time before she died. And Judy cried. Not for herself, but for her daughters. She had fought cancer twice and multiple battles with addictions to stay alive for her two beloved daughters so that they would not be left to grow up without a mother. And her heart broke for her children, not herself. A year after the attack, in August 2016, Scumbag Slager stood on trial for aggravated arson and felonious assault. Incredibly, the sleazeball's defence was that it had all been a terrible accident. <laughs> that she'd accidentally caught fire when he lit a cigarette. Oh, unbelievable. And thankfully, the jury saw through his lies and convicted him to 11 years in prison, which was the maximum sentence for assault in Ohio. 11 years. Let's just let that sink in. He has permanently disfigured a person to the point that they will never recover and will leave their children without a parent, and he gets 11 years. 
disgraceful. When Judy heard the verdict and sentence, she was outraged, and she contacted her lawyer and asked him to come see her in hospital. Meanwhile, a legal team in Ohio equally felt the sentence term was a disgrace, and so they came together and created Judy's Law in honour of Judy. The law would increase penalties for cases with victims who are left permanently disfigured when an accelerant is used to set them on fire. It will add an extra six years to a sentence to anyone who maims or disfigures. And the legal team worked furtively with the justice system to get the law passed, determined to get extra time put on Slager's sentence. When Judy's lawyers visited her, she told them that she knew she was going to die. And because of this, she wanted to give testimony against Slager prior to her death, so that she could have her testimony given at Slager's murder trial. But that is what he would face after her death. The lawyer was reticent. This had never been done in the history of Ohio law. A murder victim giving evidence before they were dead? But, as always, Judy was adamant. And so, Judy weaned herself off key medication, enduring increased pain in order to be of sound mind to testify in January of 2017. Via video conferencing, Judy, in a hospital bed, answered questions from prosecutors and was subject to cross-examination by Slager's attorney, all of whom had gathered in a courtroom for the deposition. She spoke clearly and forcefully about the timeline of the attack. She disputed Slager's contention that the arson was an accident and that he was trying to light a cigarette. Her deposition was sealed and saved. By June 2017, Judy and her doctors knew that she did not have a lot of time left. Every day was filled with excruciating pain. Every inch of her body screamed in agony, every breath a labouring, aching effort. Her internal injuries were not healing, as weren't the wounds on her back. It was just a matter of time. Meanwhile, the Ohio legal team were battling valiantly to push through Judy's law. And finally, on the 27th of June 2017, the state of Ohio passed the law. Elation passed through the room and a whoop went up. But in Judy's hospital room, there was only sadness. After 700 days in hospital, Judy had passed away, just hours before the law passed. Bonnie and Judy's children were left devastated. When the news of Judy's death reached the legal team, they immediately started proceedings against Michael Slager for murder. As Slager's murder trial approached in July of 2017, Judy's legal team knew that they needed Judy's deposition as key evidence in the trial. But would the judge allow it to be submitted? A testimony from beyond the grave 
had never been introduced into an Ohio courtroom before. It was unprecedented. But the presiding judge ruled that Judy's testimony was admissible at trial, citing that, as it is such an unprecedented case where the victim has been able to give evidence after their own death, then absolutely it should be permitted. Well, hallelujah and amen, judge. Slager was now facing the death penalty. He desperately did not want Judy's testimony to be included in the trial. He wanted to appeal the judge's ruling, allowing the deposition to be admissible. Oh, he knew the jury would only have to take one look at her in the video to know that he was guilty. And he was intent on pleading not guilty. However, his defence believed he risked an increased chance of being executed unless he pleaded guilty. And Slager took the legal team's advice, pleaded guilty, and his defence rested on the fact that he was bipolar and had an intermittent explosive disorder, which meant he can have inappropriately outsized responses in altercations, and argued that this is what had happened in 2015. Oh, please. Judy's testimony was played at the trial. After he poured the gasoline on you, what happens next? He backed away from me for about 30 seconds and I kept telling him, so please help me and stop and I'll get, I'll get the truck, I'll go with you. You know, um, why, how did, why would you do this? And I looked at him and he pulled a lighter out of his pocket and he started walking towards me and I just remember crying and begging for help and he left me on fire and the look in his eyes were his eyes went back literally after I was on fire and he, okay. he did nothing okay Judy tell me how that moment felt when you were ignited a horrible, I don't think words to describe what it feels like to have your whole body on fire. I can remember screaming for help. I can remember looking over and seeing him standing there staring at me with the look in his face that was just like I keep saying over and over again, pure evil. Like there's no other word to describe it. Hmm. Wow. And thankfully, Slager's defence was not believed. And so, on the 5th of July 2017, Slager received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. What happened to the death penalty, I hear you ask? Well, it turns out scumbag Slager had taken a plea deal. Ugh, I hate plea deals. Don't you? And this plea deal stated that if he agreed to plead guilty, he wouldn't have the death penalty placed upon his sentence. <laughs> However, this was actually Judy's wish. She had told her mother that as long as Slager admitted to the crime, confessed and accepted a life sentence, she absolutely did not want the death penalty for him. Instead, 
she said that she hoped he would find God somewhere between now and when he meets her again. Unbelievable woman. On the week of Judy's funeral, Judy's law was ratified by the state governor and passed into law. And that is Judy's story, a victim of an horrendous domestic violence. Her case inspiring the change of legislation to extend sentences of criminals of felonious assault who have disfigured their victims. Of a woman so brave that she endured immeasurable pain to give a testimony. A testimony that she knew would only be played during her own murder trial. You may have noticed by now that I have not included much back history into Michael Slager. Well, there's a reason for that. If you Google the name Michael Slager, it is hard to find any information on him relative to this story. Instead, there are numerous articles about another Michael Slager, a police officer from North Charleston, South Carolina, who shot an unarmed black man called Walter Scott to death on April 4, 2015. Now, I don't wish to disparage against any other Michael Slager out there, but do you not think there has to be something nefarious with that name? Two men of the same name conducting murderous acts in the same year. Hmm, makes you wonder. And finally, I want to leave you with the last words of Bonnie's interview on July 5th, 2017. These words have haunted me and stayed with me. It is in part why I chose this as my first episode, and because I was so moved with Judy's story, her will and her strength. Bonnie's last words were, That child suffered for two years to tell her own story. Who has the strength to do that? Who has the strength to do that? Would you? I'd love to hear what you think about this story. So please, visit me on my Facebook page. Just look up Dark Side Podcast. Come have a chat. You can also visit and contact me on my website, darksidepodcast.co.uk. Lastly, if you like the story, please would you be so kind as to leave me a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You would be making one little podcaster in the far-flung regions of the north of England incredibly happy. But, until next time... Stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. <laughs>